guys want to take your seats. I want to say good morning. Uh, again, thank you all for having me. My name is Mason. As Joe mentioned, I serve as an associate pastor of a church in Waverly, planting a church in Chillicothe. And I just want you all to know that uh, we have been praying for you and this church for a long time. We've been praying for this church, for this place for a long time. So we're so excited about what you all are doing, what you all get to be a part of, and I'm encouraged to see you all here. I also come bringing gifts. Uh, this is a book called Conversion, uh, How God Creates a People. This is one of the best books that I've read in the past couple years, and I will give it for free to the first, first person to raise your hand and want it. Right up there. Just come get it out. you wherever you are. Here's what I mean by that. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, if you've repented of your sins, have trusted in Christ as Lord, if you've been filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit and are working to follow Jesus in your daily life, then the book of Acts is your history. Acts tells the story of the early church, and you are part of that now by God's grace. In our passage for this morning, you'll be reminded of the miracle that God has performed in your own life. If you're here this morning and perhaps you are not a Christian, perhaps you were confused by some of the things I just said, let me just say that I'm so glad that you are here as well and there's something in the Bible for you today. In this passage, you'll see a history of what we call the church today. And you'll get a little sneak peek behind the curtain of why Christians seem to care so much about Jesus and his kingdom. So there's something here for you no matter who you are this morning. Let me remind you a little bit of the context we find ourselves in in the book of Acts. In chapter 21, where you all left off, the Apostle Paul, he was a leader in the church. He'd gone back to Jerusalem and was being questioned by the Jewish leaders. Uh, they were asking him why he was allowing Gentiles, that is non-Jews, into the church. He was arrested and he was going to be put on trial. And at the end of chapter 21, he has a conversation with a Roman official and the last thing he says is this. Let me just read to you chapter 21, verse 39. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and that's where the passage stops. That sets the stage for where we're going to be this morning as we turn over into chapter 22. Paul is going to give a public defense of, of what he is doing and what he believes God to be doing. Basically, all he's doing, and what we're going to read today, is he's sharing his testimony. He's, as we read, pay attention to the details that Paul reminds us of here. And if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you'll remember much of what he says. He's recounting what has happened to him, but he's also telling the people what God, who God is, and what God is doing, not only in Paul's life, but in the lives of the hearers, and in your life today as well. So with that, if you want to turn with me uh, to Acts 21, in your Bibles, or we'll have it on the screen as well, uh, Acts chapter 22, I'm going to read the whole chapter, 
this morning to give you context, okay? So bear with me. We're going to get through it together. Here's what God uh, gives us in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to make those also who were there, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. As he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. That's God's word. Would you pray again with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would bless the reading and teaching of it, that you would open up our hearts and minds 
that you would remind us of the good news of the gospel, that we would worship you as Lord in our lives. Thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So what we're going to see here is that Paul's arrest essentially ends his missionary work and journey that he has been on. From now on, through basically the rest of the book, he's going to be under arrest. So that for Paul, that speech that we just read is less about his legal defense. It's less about why he is innocent in a civil sense, although he does make that case. It's more about Paul trying to show the Jewish people something very important about who God is and what God is doing. He's showing them that God is saving the Gentiles, and that God saving the Gentiles is a fulfillment of the promises that he made to Israel going all the way back through the Old Testament. Think about it like this. What has God promised? God promised his people that because of his character, he now offers an unshakable promise of eternal life to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation because of the work of Jesus Christ. God told Israel back in the book of Genesis that through them the nations would be blessed. And the good news of the gospel is the ultimate blessing, and it's now available to anyone, Jewish or not, because of the cross. And so Paul is saying here, as he does elsewhere, that God has not abandoned or forgotten his people. Rather, he has opened the doors. He has enlarged the tents and saved people regardless of who they are or what they have done, Jewish or not. As I mentioned earlier, the content of his speech that we read there is really Paul just giving his testimony. He's recounting what has happened to him. He's saying, this is what God has done in my life. If you're taking notes, you can divide the speech into four parts. His credentials, his conversion, his calling, and his citizenship. So Paul starts, as we read in verse 3 through 5, giving his credentials as a Jewish Pharisee. He was unmatched in his pedigree, his upbringing, his education. He says something similar in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What we know about Paul is that he was so zealous for the law of God given in the Old Testament that he actually persecuted followers of Jesus who called themselves the way. That's what we read in chapter 22. What do we know about the way? Well, we know that it was rooted in God's promise, his word, his command, and his direction. And what Paul is saying here is that these Jewish leaders who are, who, are, um, who are talking to him are basically in the same shoes that he once was. He was so sure of his own moral goodness and his resume that he was so superior and so deserving of salvation that he, need, that he had earned it. As an aside, let me just stop and say that that's a question for each one of us today. Sort of a classic question. You've heard it before. If you were to die today and go to heaven and had to give an answer for why you should be allowed to get into heaven, what would your answer be? And the temptation from a human level is to start your answer with the word I. Well, because I deserve it. Because I'm such a good person. Because I did this. Because I'm certainly better than that other person standing over there. 
Well, we as Christians know is that the correct answer to that question for why we are going to get into heaven doesn't start with I, it starts with he, because he died for me, because he took my place on the cross, because he took the wrath of God, because he is worthy. See, for Paul, it was all about I before he came to know Christ. Then Christ did something amazing in his life that made it about he. That's the realization that changed Paul's perspective. Though his credentials were the best, he now knows that the only way that he's going to be saved and have eternal life is by the grace and mercy of God. In verses 6 through 11, he gets to the next part of his speech, and he tells of his conversion. What does Paul tell us? He says that he was lost, but now is found. That he wasn't seeking God. In fact, he was doing the opposite. He was persecuting the church. He was a Pharisee, a religious zealot who killed people following the way. He tells us that he imprisoned and sometimes killed Christians because they were breaking Old Testament law. But what happened? At the height of Paul's sin and rebellion, God broke in and miraculously halted him. Literally stopping him in his tracks, changed his name. Paul was born again, given a new name, Paul. And his life has never been the same since. What do we learn from Paul there? That for each of us today, you can't have an encounter with the God of the universe and walk away unchanged. That's what we call conversion. Jesus changes a person from the inside out. Because of his love and his mercy and grace, he takes our heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. We are made new or born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. In fact, if you have more questions about what that means, you can talk to... What's your name? Ashley. Ashley. She has a book. Exactly <laughs> Verses 12 through 16, Paul details his calling. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for God to everyone of what you have seen and heard. God gave Paul a mission to go. To go, to show, and to tell who God is, what God has done on the cross, and what God has done in Paul's life. Specifically, uh, we know that God has sent Paul to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world in order to extend God's invitation of salvation to anyone who would hear. When God sends Paul there, that's a foreign world for him. He's not familiar with the people he was going to, but he loves Jesus. And so he's going to follow him wherever he calls him to, whether that's to persecution and suffering in the Gentile world or persecution and suffering at the hands of his own people back home here in Jerusalem. Paul is simply doing what God has called him to do. He's been so radically changed by the love of Christ that his life is no longer his own, but for him it belongs to God. And so he goes where God is going to send him. Again, as an aside, that ought to be true of each of us, shouldn't it? As Christians, we ought all to desire to be more and more like Jesus every day in our words, and in our demeanor, in our actions, and the things we desire and think about. Day by day, we ought to look less like our natural selves and more like Jesus who saved us. 
That's what he has promised to do in our lives anyway. Paul writes in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Again, if you're taking notes, you might write down another passage, Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. That's a story of Jesus being rejected in Nazareth. And as I was reading this story, I think my, my devotional plan had me reading Luke 4 or something at the same time. It's almost a direct parallel that Jesus experienced what Paul experiences here in Acts 22. And as I've been reading, and I, I wonder if this is true for you as well, as I've been reading about Paul, I keep being reminded of what I read about Jesus. And what a powerful testimony that is. That someone sees your life and might be reminded of Christ. So I want you to take some time, if you can, this afternoon or this week, and ask yourself, when people see you, when they interact with you, when you speak with them, more and more are people being reminded of Jesus. Not completely. We're all broken. We're all fallen. We're all in process. But Jesus has promised to grow us into Christ-likeness. The last part of Paul's speech is when he reveals his citizenship. So we've got his credentials, his conversion, his calling. Here's his citizenship. In verses 22 through 29, the people sort of get fed up with Paul. They're not happy that the Gentiles are being offered the promise of salvation. They're not happy that the Gentiles are experiencing the grace of God. They're about to physically punish Paul. They're going to beat him and whip him. They've stretched him out. He's, it's about to happen. And then Paul, at the last moment, reveals to them that he's actually a Roman citizen and that it's against the law for them to do what they are about to do. Again, remember, Paul is the ultimate insider. Uh, his pedigree, his status is higher and more deserving of all of these people who are challenging him and questioning him. Yet he doesn't rely on those things until the very last moment to save him from being beaten and possibly killed. What do we know about Paul? that he was a Roman citizen by birth. And that status as a Roman citizen affords him amazing privileges and blessings that he wouldn't have otherwise. And so from a legal standpoint, Paul's entire argument rests on him being a Roman citizen. But it's important for us to think about this because the fact that Paul was helped in an earthly standpoint by his Roman citizenship is true of you in a spiritual sense if you have trusted in Christ. What does the Bible tell us? That if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, then you are a citizen of heaven. That your identity isn't primarily in the earthly things that, that mark you. Your class, your race, your status, your relationships, your job. Fill in the blank. None of those things are your primary identity marker. If you're a Christian, your primary identity marker is that you are a child of God, a brother of Jesus Christ, and a co-heir with him to all things. Think about it like this. Uh, the, the events that we read about here in Acts 22 happened probably around 55 AD, give or take. Five years later, Paul, again, put yourself in his shoes, Paul is going to write these words about his citizenship. This is Ephesians 2, verse 11. Let me read it to you. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircum uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands. He's talking to most of us, I imagine, here. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you're a Christian today, that means that you are a citizen of heaven. It means that you are right now held in the arms of God and that nothing can strip that citizenship from you. That citizenship is your primary identity marker as you go out into the world. The Bible will tell us that on this earth we are strangers and sojourners seeking a heavenly city because heaven is our true home. That reality should change the way we live our lives, shouldn't it? Not trying to build up our kingdoms on earth, but living for an eternal heavenly kingdom. It's a reminder today not to live according to your earthly citizenship, but to live today in light of that future day. To be reminded that your value is placed in the storehouses of heaven. That our hope is eternal and deeper. Often, sometimes more under the surface and unseen. Our hope is in ourselves, it's in Christ. So that's what Paul gives us in his speech. What does that passage mean for us today? I want to close our time together by reminding you of three what I'll call gospel realities. Things that are true of you if you've trusted in Christ. The first is that this passage reminds us of the scandal of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The gospel is scandalous because God has saved people who are undeserving, unclean enemies of him, who've lived their entire lives in rejection of him. You can't be good enough to earn your salvation. It's a free gift to people who don't deserve it. I heard a pastor say it like this one time about this passage. He said, this is the scandal of the gospel. The Jews treasured their status as God's people and found it difficult to accept that God was grafting in those from outside their race. God's grace extends to those we assume are beyond his reach, even to those we despise. See, the gospel is good news for us today, exactly because we don't deserve it. But God is rich in mercy, and he saves the broken, the lost, and the undeserving like you. Second thing this passage reminds us of is the power of our stories. 
Again, what's the content of Paul's speech that we read this morning in Acts 22? It's his testimony. All he's doing is relaying what God has done in his life and what that means for him today. How might that apply to you? Well, think about it like this. When you're talking to a family member or a friend, a, a co-worker, a classmate, and they ask you about Jesus or why you go to church or any of those sort of questions that people ask, you may be ill-equipped to answer every single question they have about the Bible. Uh, it may be that, that you can't keep up with all of their logical arguments that they're making. It could be, and I'm speaking from experience here, that they're just smarter than you and better at debating than you are. Regardless of all of that, I had, a, I had a professor tell me one time that if you lose an argument about the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. It could just be that you're stupid. He said that to me. And I, he's right. What's one important thing that you know? You know what Christ has done in your life. And you know that deep in your heart. You know what God has done. You have your experience. You have your testimony. And so there's a sense in which we all have different stories. We come from different places. And yet, there's, it's also true that we share one testimony. We share one miracle that God has done in our lives. That we were lost, but now we are found. Blind, but now we see. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we're in him and with him forever. And that's a story that you can tell that person who's asking you in your life. Finally, this passage reminds us of the unity we have in Christ. Think about Paul, the Jews, and the Gentiles here. Think about your own life. Think about those of us in this room. You can take two people from completely different backgrounds, different interests, different political views, different upbringings, different social classes. But if they have trusted in Christ then they have something more fundamental in common than two people who have all those earthly things in common but don't know Christ. Because both people have experienced an amazing, life-transforming miracle. I've been brought back from the dead by Jesus, and so have you. That's an amazing thing that we can share. Paul had a lot in common from an earthly standpoint, with the people who were persecuting him in this story. And yet he identified more with Jesus-loving pagans and Gentiles. Why? Because of what God had done in his heart and in his life, they shared something foundational and eternal. Like Paul, I think that ought to give us a desire and a zeal for evangelism and missions to see people outside of Christ to come and know his love just like we have, to experience his grace and forgiveness just like we have. If you're a Christian today, you know the secret of eternal life. And yet that secret isn't meant to be kept. It's meant to be told and shared, proclaimed everywhere that we go. That's all that we see Paul doing here and throughout the book. Here's my hope for each one of us today, that through reading this story, we would see how precious the good news of the gospel is. That we would set our priorities and our loyalties straight. 
that you'd be reminded that you're here today to celebrate an amazing miracle that has happened. The amazing gift of new life in Christ. The gospel doesn't just change our eternal destiny, uh, where we go when we die, although it does do that, thankfully. But it changes our very lives right now. And in the same way that God sent Paul on a mission, he's now sending you on a mission in your life. Think about it. Wherever he has you, wherever he sends you, to the people he sends you to, that is your mission, and God has you there for a reason. So, as you go into your life this week, in your conversations, in your actions, in your choices, remember three of the things we talked about this morning. Remember your conversion. Remember your calling. And ultimately, remember where your citizenship is. It's in heaven with Christ. As we do that, let's thank God for his miraculous gift. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we can gather together to worship you, to hear your word. Uh, we pray that you would work in our lives by your spirit, that you would continue to speak to us, that we would seek to make much of you with our lives, that we wouldn't seek to build up our earthly kingdoms, but that we would work to build your kingdom through your word and your power. I pray that you would help us to do that as a church and as your people. Thank you most of all for Jesus. In his name that we pray. Amen.